0: All right, would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, please? That's where we are. Um, wow, the first service, worship time, I was so taken by the doctrine of sin that we've been singing about today. That we have hearts that are idol factories, ooh, that's tough for my ego to take. I, I don't like hearing that I worship false gods that my heart actually creates these gods that I bowed down before. Walt said that there's an exchange that's taken place between God's glory and ours. That's a great way to define sin. Sin is a worship problem. Before it's a social problem or a moral problem or an ethical problem, sin is a worship problem. We're worshiping the wrong object of worship. We're worshiping false gods. Only the true God deserves our worship. And so, this morning's passage where Jesus asks his disciples, Who do you say that I am? is the defining question of all of life. So, uh, as we c- ponder this question, I want to read through this, and I'd love to hear a couple of your reflections, and then we'll dive in and, and make some points as we head toward the Lord's Supper. Mark chapter 8, we'll pick it up at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. So there are a lot of opinions floating around about who Jesus is. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Wow, what a great passage. Yeah, so so they're really starting to get it in a very clear way, but we can see there's a whole lot more clarity needed. Matthew actually spells that out he says um, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you Peter but but my father who's in heaven did you didn't figure this out and you've got a ways to go in really understanding this but you've got the bottom line down now You've, you've got that actually I think Mark makes the same point with the illustration of that same idea he gives in the man who's healed of blindness in the, the previous story we preached on last week, see, for uh, the previous section 22, right up to our passage, where the man progressively regains his sight by the power of God. Same thing is going on here. There's, there's a, a, an understanding we need to arrive at of Jesus, but at the same time, that understanding develops over time progressively. So there is a point where we say, you're the Christ. But then, if you've been walking with Jesus any length of time, you've realized, wow, I didn't have a clue who he was when I made that true declaration. I don't know when it was for you, if you've made that declaration, if you've trusted Jesus in saving faith effort, having turned from your sins, you came to know him, but you're getting to know him better, and sometimes he's completely defying your expectations you still have of him. And and that's really what this passage is getting at. This exchange that took place between God and ourselves when we we dethroned him, took him off his throne and put ourselves there. There's this exchange that takes place and we worship uh, other gods. We may even be calling him the same names but we've formulated an understanding of who he is so that it's really a different God. It's astounding how much freedom we actually feel in this, in our society especially. Man, you hear people talk, my God would never do that. Your God. What they mean by that is the one I formulated ahead of time before any revelation corrects that in some way, and God better fit that definition. We feel amazing freedom to autonomously, arrogantly define God for him. And then he better fit that definition. If if it doesn't square with what we think he better be like ahead of time, well, we're pretty ticked off about it. And we've got to to rearrange things. And and Jesus is demanding that his disciples here define him and his ways and following him the way he does. He's he's just laying it out there very clearly. And he asks them the question of life. It's amazing how, how we feel this freedom to define God. And and how often uh, we find out the God we really serve when we're desperate. That's gut check time, that's real belief time. When desperation hits, when suffering hits, when struggle hits, which God do you flee to? And then do you progressively move to other sources of strength, of peace, of perspective? If the, the God you started with didn't seem to be working out the way you had hoped. Um, you know, one of my great favorite theologians is Will Farrell, and, and his... his uh, I haven't seen the movie Talladega Nights, but I have seen a couple scenes of it, and it's just amazing how insightful it is in this human tendency to invent God, to, to create him in our image. And in our points of desperation, go there. There's this scene where he's praying over dinner and... Um, <laughs> And he's praying to dear baby Jesus. And his wife gets upset with this. And she says, hey, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's it's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. And Ricky says this, this race car driver, well, I like the Christmas Jesus best. When I'm saying grace and when you say grace you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whatever you want and then he goes on okay dear eight pounds six ounce newborn infant Jesus don't even know a word yet just a little infinite so cuddly but still omnipotent we just thank you for all the races I've won in the 21.2 million dollars and, and, and he goes on and And he he just likes that version of Jesus. And then they have this conversation around the table where his friends like party Jesus, who sort of has a mullet and likes to really party because I like to party. And and all these versions of Jesus that fit the kind of Jesus we like. And remember I said that we find out who we really worship when life gets desperate. Well, he gets in a a wreck later on in the movie. and, And he thinks he's on fire even though he isn't, and he's running around the track, he finally strips down to his underwear, and he's running around the racetrack, and he's screaming, help me, Jesus! And then he says, help me, Jewish God! Help, help me, Allah! And then he goes, help me, Tom Cruise! He says, Tom Cruise, use your witchcraft to put out the flames! You know, Tom, Tom Cruise is really into Scientology, and that's a little jab in the Hollywood community, right? And, and then he says, Help me, Oprah Winifrey. And and he's just, he's going to whatever God seems to be the likely next one that might help him. Because he thinks the flames are still going. And and that's that's actually brilliant comedy. Because it's very insightful into our hearts and the tendencies we have. It really is a profound theological statement about our hearts being idol factories. Just clicking through the options until we find one that we think works the way we want. Very pragmatically driven, very self-absorbed in in all of this. But Jesus walks on the scene and he says, no, you need to know me for who I am. And it's very important to realize that this question he asked the disciples is the question. Who do you see Jesus is? is, Who do you say Jesus is? It's the question of life. It's the question of human history. It's the most important question cosmically and personally that you could ever ask. This really is the pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry. It's right at the heart of Gospel of Matthew and of here in Mark, where he's moving along methodically in his ministry on his way to Jerusalem. And then he asks the question here in Caesarea Philippi, which is this place of rampant religious pluralism, lots of gods you could worship in Philippi. And Jesus says, no, who who do people say that I am? And they tell him what all the opinions are out there. And then he asks the question, but who do you say that I am? And I hope you, by the Spirit's work this morning, hear Jesus asking you that question, looking you right in the eye and saying, who do you say that I am? Do you think I'm just a moral teacher? Do you think I'm just a myth that somebody made up? Do you think that I have some weight in your life, but ultimately it's sort of a 50-50 proposition here? Or, or am I Lord and God? Am I the Christ, as Mike said? When, when Peter says, you're the Christ, what he's saying is, is, you are the fulfillment of all of God's promises. It's a radical thing to say. He's saying, you are the one we've been waiting for. You're the one God said would come all the way back in the Garden of Eden that would crush the head of the serpent and free us from our sin, free us from death, free us from the darkness of this world. You're the one who brings God's kingdom reign and rule once and for all. Imagine saying that to your friend who was a blue-collar worker who had nothing impressive in his external appearance. They had been around him enough, heard enough of his teaching, seen enough of his miracles to say, you're the one, you're the one we've been waiting for. Now as we see, they've still got an agenda they're bringing to him for what that better mean. And it's understandable, because Jesus even uses this term. Do you see it in verse 31? And he began to teach them that the Son of Man. So he's the Christ, and what he does here is take this this Mashiach, this Christos, this anointed one, the one upon whom the Spirit has come to enable him to fulfill all these kingdom realities and these God-presence-bringing realities, and he also links that with the Son of Man of Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is where you get this Son of Man idea shorthand for Messiah, for the Christ, And that one in Daniel 7, he's glorious. He comes in the clouds before the ancient of days with glory and power, and he's worshiped by the nations and obeyed by everybody, and he has a kingdom that never ends. And so when you're under Roman oppression, by that matter, any kind of oppression, you long for a savior, you long for relief, and these Jews under Roman oppression are saying, come, Messiah, come. And they finally come to the conclusion that Jesus is this Messiah, this son of man. But what Jesus does is fill in the the rest of the story. You don't get to pick which version of Jesus you like or want or what attributes of God you like or want and then just leave the others off. Jesus comes and tells his disciples, I am that glorious son of man of Daniel 7, but you've got to include the whole portfolio the Bible gives in seeing Jesus. It needs to include suffering, he says he says I, I, from that time the narrative really picks up and now he starts heading to Jerusalem because the key question's been answered and he says he taught them in that time the son of man must suffer many things and by re- be rejected by the elders and chief priests he must suffer that phrase right there the son of man must suffer boy we could do a, a whole year-long series on just those few words the son of Man, that, that amazing figure of Daniel 7. What Jesus is doing now is taking other images of the Messiah that they would tend not to gravitate toward most and making sure they include them in there like the Isaiah 53 suffering servant Messiah who's God's agent and it's a very different picture than the Daniel 7 coming in the clouds with glory picture. This one is as a lamb led to the slaughter. This one is a very different picture. We all like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah says in 53. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, this suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. It goes on, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. So what Jesus is doing is saying, Peter, apostles, People sitting in La Mirada in church this morning, make sure with this glorious, victorious king, you include a cross. And this was the temptation in Jesus' life. This was the temptation when Satan came to him in the wilderness after he had fasted for 40 days and and gotten his perspective right. It wasn't when he was weakest, I think. It was when he was strongest after 40 days of, of perspective gaining through spiritual disciplines. And Satan comes to him, and what does he tempt him with? a crown without a cross. The whole theme of our series in Mark is the king and the cross. Those two things just don't go together naturally, but Jesus makes sure in our minds they will. He wants to say, oh, I'm a king with a throne and an everlasting kingdom, but make sure suffering's part of that picture too. Make sure my death My punishment in your place is part of that picture, too. Because if I don't die, you won't live. If I don't suffer, you won't be freed from your sin. If I don't pay the penalty for your sin, you'll have to pay it yourself. And so Jesus lays down his life for us, and he frees us from death in the process. And that's what we need to do. So first, we see that Jesus puts himself at the center of his teaching, which is a radical thing to do. When you think about that, look, if I got up here this morning and said, well, We'll be reading from Mark after chapter 8, but the main point this morning, by far, above everything else, is that you know me, Eric Thomas, that, that I am the point of the message this morning, and we'll talk about other things too, but we'll make sure everything we talk about eventually gets back to me, because knowing me is the most important thing. You would not say, oh, what a great preacher. You'd say, ah, run away, right? I don't even want to talk to you at a party, never mind sitting in church and hear that, Right? We don't hear somebody talk that way and say, oh, what a great moral teacher. We say, you're you're an egomaniac bore. But Jesus is always the main point of his teaching. Oh, he'll talk about the kingdom, but the point is you better know the king, and I'm that king. This shows Jesus knew he was God. This shows Jesus knew he deserved to be the main point of all the teaching. And so he puts himself at the center of this teaching. But then he says, this son of man must suffer. What does it mean to say he must suffer? Just think about that word must. <laughs> Have you thought about how much is loaded into that word he must suffer? It's, it's got to be this way. That's what that means. Now why? What does it mean to say he must suffer? Well, the first thing I would say it means is he dies voluntarily. He, he knows this is his calling. He knows this is part of the deal. He chooses to do this. For the joy set before him, Jesus became one of us and submitted himself to the will of the Father and the glory of God and for our good. Jesus willingly joyfully, voluntarily goes to the cross. It's really hard to imagine as you see him dripping in blood after his beating, standing next to Pilate, not saying a word just like Isaiah 53, to imagine that he's in charge.
1: <laughs> but he is.
0: You remember actually what he said to Pilate? I think it's John 10. John, further down probably. Yeah, further down. John 16. Anyway, Jesus standing next to Pilate in and. Pilate asks him some questions, and Jesus doesn't say anything. And Pilate gets a little annoyed, and he says, don't you know I can hand you over to be killed? That gets Jesus to talk, and he turns to him and he says, you don't have any power that isn't given to you. I'm in charge here, Pilate. I know you think you are. I know everybody thinks you're in charge. I'm running this show. That's hard to believe when he's dripping blood. When in just a little while he won't even be able to carry his own cross. But that's what's going on. He's laying down his life. Look at this old uh, painting from the 14th century. Historically very inaccurate, but theologically very accurate. And that's the point. This is making a theological point, not a historical point. Jesus has put a ladder on the cross and he's climbing up look how active he is in going to the cross look how passive the people all the only contribute contribution they make is to hand them the hammer and they have a bucket of nails which represents their sin i love that picture because it makes sure we understand that jesus laid down his life that's what he says doesn't he? he he says that exactly in john 10 i'm the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. Jesus is very active in the atoning work of God. As we saw, the Father's active too and the Spirit's bringing all this about in Jesus' life as he leads him out in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, enables him to overcome that and then brings him right to this cross and then brings him out of the tomb too. The whole Father, Son, and Spirit are bringing this about very actively, very intentionally. So it's voluntary, it's joyful, it's loving, and it's sovereign. This is a sovereign act. God determined this to be the case. Doesn't mean those humans aren't responsible for their sinful evil of putting the only innocent man who's ever lived on a cross, but we see that as the Bible says, this all happens according to the predetermined plan of God. He's always ultimately running the show. And Jesus is really in charge here, even though it doesn't look that way at all. And so he dies willingly, voluntarily. He dies sovereignly, and he dies necessarily. Uh, he, he came to die. Jesus says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus lived so he could die. He knew that from the beginning. That was his destiny, a cross. Oh yes, that would lead to an empty tomb, but the cross, the death is where he knows he's heading. The king came to die and to defeat the powers of darkness by becoming weak. And he dies necessarily. He dies because we needed him to. Listen to Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The wages of sin is death, God says. That's the economy of dealing with sin. That's how it must happen. We can't do it. We can't solve our problems. The solution needs to come from a a sufficient sacrifice. Not one of us can offer that sacrifice for ourselves or anyone else. We needed the God-man Jesus to come and take our place on a cross in his suffering and his death. It had to be this way, not because God was stuck in that situation. Remember, he he does it sovereignly and freely, but when he determines to save us, this is how it had to go down. The wages of sin is death. The solution to sin is is not a political one primarily. It's it's not a, a social thing. It's not anything we can fix on our own. We radically need God to intervene as a savior, a king who alone has the power to solve our greatest problems. And Jesus dies necessarily out of love. He suffers in this way. So the strength we find comes through weakness. The defeat of death comes through his death. What a glorious thing to think about. Are you one of those people who goes into something and when you you have fear or concerns, you do the, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? I I do that all the time. Worst case scenario, right? If we do this, what's the worst outcome that could be and are we willing to do that? Well, have you ever thought about the fact that because Jesus defeated death, really the worst thing that could ever happen to you doesn't bring you fear anymore? governments right isn't it amazing that jesus actually died on a cross very legally it was all according to, to legalities oh there were there were backroom deals but it happened according to the legal process in a very very dark and messed up system in the world the leaders are part of it roman and jewish and these people put him on a cross and if the worst thing that can happen to you death no longer has any claim on you because of jesus Talk about being able to find life and freedom and freedom from anxiety and all the things that tear us up. And Peter doesn't like this. Peter does not like Jesus' agenda for his messiahship. He rebukes him. Same word that is used when Jesus rebukes demons. And then Jesus rebukes Peter with the same word. And he brings the group in and he calls him to a life of discipleship that actually mirrors Jesus' life. If you're going to follow me, you need to surrender the core of your being to me. Let me define you. Let me do the transforming work in you to make you into who I've created you to be. You don't set the agenda for me. You don't tell me ahead of time what you need to be like. (laughs) I was just talking to an old friend on the phone, and we were just marveling at how in some ways we're still five-year-old boys trying to prove ourselves. It's amazing, in our earliest days, we tried to find reasons for our worth, and it's so hard to leave those behind. Really, how do you define yourself? Where is the significance of your life located in your mind and heart, really? Every one of us has a lot of room to say, wow, I define myself by things that ultimately don't really matter and aren't how God defines me. I don't know what it is for you, if it's uh, your degree you're about to maybe get or your vocation you've gotten or hope to get or that you have gotten married or or maybe that's what you aspire to or you have children now or you have a home with a mortgage almost paid off or you have that car you really wanted when you were 16 or you have pretty healthy relationships or maybe you don't have those things and you're thinking that when those things arrive then life will begin but none of those things give life. None of those things meet our deepest needs. None of those things free us from death. None of those things answer the problems of our eternal life and our abundant life we really need and can have in Christ. To find your life, Jesus says, you need to lose it. To really be free, you need to die. And Jesus died so we don't have anything to prove anymore. We don't have anything to demonstrate anymore. Jesus died so we don't have to hide anymore. It's my favorite Kids' song that plays around my house. Jesus died, so I don't have to hide anymore. Hide behind all the things we can hide behind our accomplishments, our image that we put forth. In what are you really finding your identity? Jesus says we live for Him and the gospel. He doesn't leave it abstract. He doesn't leave it vague and fuzzy and overly spiritualized or so relational that it doesn't work itself out in life. It means that we live for him and his causes and his purposes depending on him and the spirit's work in our lives. It's a Christ-centered, gospel-advancing life. So now all our decisions, all our affections, all our thoughts, all our resources are going to the exaltation of Christ rather than ourselves. With the king on the throne and a cross, that's how we find life. Listen to C.S. Lewis. Your real new self, which is Christ and also yours, and yours because it's his, will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will come when you're looking for him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know for more everyday matters, even in social life. You'll never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you're making. Have you noticed that? Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. (laughs) Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring, Uh, Two pence, how often it's been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose yourself and you'll save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. If you live your life focused on self, preserving self, exalting self, demanding self as you want to define self, you will never find anything of lasting value. But when we focus our lives on the one who is the way, the life, and the truth, that's when we find true life. That's when we find abundant life. Listen to Paul in Philippians three, who had accomplished so much religiously. I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's our life. Jesus is our life now. If you're a Christian and you're defining it any way but this. You're not a Christian, or else you've got a long way to go in really getting this. Isn't it good? That God's patient in the process. Well, it doesn't end there, right? He, he says that we're not going to taste death until we see this coming, and one day there will come with glory this King. And so it doesn't end in death. It doesn't end in suffering. It doesn't end in self denial. It ends in finding self and life and glory for eternity. And and so that's what we remember this morning as we take the Lord's Supper. That's what we are reminding ourselves as these servers say the body of Christ was broken for you. These symbols of his body and blood as this representation of this very suffering and death that the king said he must undergo. I think Jesus is really happy every time we do this because we're getting the very point of this passage this morning, this key point in all of life. This is for people who've turned from sin and trusted Jesus and put all their weight on him and his work in their place for their standing before God. If you haven't done that, what a wonderful morning to do just that. This is for those who've trusted him and we come forward as a body of Christ, reminding ourselves of the body of Christ. Tonight, we'll do baptisms, and remember the same thing, that in faith we die with him and are raised to walk in newness of life. These wonderful images, these ordinances that Jesus gave to remind us of this very message this morning cause us to ask the question, and you need to ask yourself this question, who do you say Jesus is? Every one of us has plenty of room to get rid of idolatry concerning Christ and replace it with a true understanding of who he is. And then realize that his life has radical implications for our lives. That he is now Lord and he calls the shots and we do what he says. And when we find life in him, we find life truly and eternally. The way we take Lord's Supper here at Grace, there's a gluten-free option over there. Our servers will come forward, and they'll offer these to you as priests offering you this. And if the servers would come forward now, I'd appreciate it. Uh, And and you take the bread, and you dip it in the cup, reminding you of the body and blood of Christ. And then you take that in this beautiful, very simple, but very, very profound image of ingesting these images, these symbols of what Jesus is and did for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for loving us this way. Thank you for recognizing that our problem required the suffering and death of the Son of Man. That we can only have glory with him when we have suffering and death with him. Help each of us to know ways we are wrongly thinking of Christ and think according to the scriptures. Help us, Lord, to think of ways we're wrongly thinking about what it means to follow you and surrender all we are and all we have, all our desires, all our resources, every gift, every blessing, every molecule in Adam, surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. Help us to die to self, take up our cross in a daily way, and follow in the footsteps of our Master, who is the author and perfecter of this faith. Lord, I pray for those who may not know you here this morning that this would be the glorious day they say, my righteous deeds add up to nothing. I need Jesus and that they trust him. Lord, we're grateful and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.